Oh, hey, hi, hello, welcome to Hollywood Party. Oops, excuse me. Hey, I'm so glad you made it back. This week's guest gets the tragic treatment way too much for my liking. So let's try and turn that around. Grab a drink and join the party. This week, we're getting to know Rock Hudson. If you've been to a Hollywood party before, you know I hate remembering someone mainly for a tragic death. That is incredibly lazy and typically disregards someone's amazing life. Besides, no one ever says, ah yes, please remember me as I was when I was dying. As I got to know Rock, I took major issue when people said that his final images, looking cadaverous, is what will remain lodged in the collective consciousness. I'll bet that most people 16 and under had their first introduction to Rock Hudson on an I Love Lucy episode. That's right, the Palm Springs episode. Grade A, prime cut, beefcake. That's the Rock I'm talking about. That is who I think of when I think of Rock. I basically never think of him in the last few years of his life because why when I have everything else super hot to think of? So let's get into it. Roy Harold Shearer Jr. was born November 17, 1925 in Winnetka, Illinois. His dad, Roy Sr., was a mechanic and his mom, Kay, was a housewife. His labor was five days long and Rock felt major guilt for the rest of his life about ruining his mother's body. Ouch. So his parents were married on March 17, 1925. I'll do the math. That was eight months before Rock showed up. Years later, after a few martinis, Kay told one of Rock's friends that Roy Sr. wasn't the real father. It was a guy who was a gas station attendant. Rock really does look like his dad, but Roy's brother was also a gas station attendant, so maybe that's where the family resemblance comes from. It doesn't really matter because Roy Sr. walked out in 1931. Maybe it was because he lost his job during the Depression. Maybe it was because his wife ignored him for their son. He didn't really offer an explanation. The following year, Kay and Rock took a bus out to Pasadena to snap Roy out of it, and they came home without him. She filed for divorce in 1933. She was a mother, father, and big sister to me, Rock said, and I was a son and brother to her, regardless of who she was married to. Kay thought Rock needed a clean-cut father figure, so she married a Marine named Wallace Fitzgerald. At 18, he was arrested for larceny, he assaulted someone when he was 21, deserted his post in the military and went missing for 12 days, and then he ended up in jail in Yuma, Arizona after he went on a bender. What is clean cut about this guy? He sounds like a rusty pair of scissors. Wallace ended up adopting his new stepson, and when he asked for money for drama lessons, Wallace beat the crap out of Rock. It goes without saying this dude was an extremely abusive alcoholic. So at 12 years old, Rock started a lifelong habit of biting his nails and frequently starts wetting his bed. Luckily, Kay divorced this jerk in 1941. The movies were Rock's escape, as well as having multiple after-school jobs. He stocked groceries, was a soda jerk, golf caddy, and a movie usher. He did not like Errol Flynn because he reminded him of his crappy stepdad. Wallace was super hideous, so it must be the drunk thing. In 1944, Rock enlisted in the Navy. He unloaded naval planes from carriers in the Philippines. 
He was honorably discharged in 1946, and he filled out a questionnaire afterwards stating he had no kids. Well, 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 well. Kay said that while Rock was on leave, he had a fling with the mother of a classmate from high school, and she claimed to have had his child. He considered going back to meet the kid, but the lady had remarried and he didn't really want to mess things up for her. In 2014, Susan Dent, a 69-year-old woman, sued the Hudson estate. Not for money, she lived in Madonna's old house in Beverly Hills. She's doing all right. But for his DNA, she ended up genetically matching with Rock's relatives, so it does seem that he has at least one child out there. There are rumors of possibly more. Personally, I'm fine with that. He was super hot, and uh, those genes should be passed down, for sure. After the Navy, he stayed in Illinois for a little bit, then he moved to Long Beach to live with his biological dad, who sold vacuums. Rock was not a great salesman, and his dad was still very lacking in any kind of paternal instincts. So after six months, Roy fired him and kicked him out. Rock then became a truck driver for Birdseye, and he would park his truck in front of Columbia and Paramount, waiting to be discovered. That didn't really work, so he bought a tan suit and then stood outside of MGM. Nothing happened. He looked up the older brother of one of his Navy pals. Kenneth Hodge was the assistant producer of Lux Radio Theater on CBS. He was 11 years older than Rock, very sophisticated, and not at all stereotypically gay. He really pulled a Henry Higgins with Rock. He polished him up, gave him new clothes, but he was really careful to keep that boy next door charm. He became Rock's agent. They moved into the Hollywood Hills together, and Ken dipped into his own savings to throw a party to introduce Rock to industry people. The party's theme was, you ought to be in pictures. That is adorable. This is where Rock first encountered the agent, Henry Wilson. Roddy McDowell summed Henry up like this. He was like the slime that oozed out from under a rock you did not want to turn over. Henry's dad was the VP at Columbia Phonograph Company, and at a young age, Henry found there was a market for the gossip he was privy to because of his dad's job. He was writing backstage gossip for Variety by the time he hit high school. His dad thought his obsession with showbiz was sissy. Uh, that's your actual job, dude, so what does that say about you? So he shipped Henry off to boarding school to butch him up. Why do men do this? Let's surround you with all men to make you less gay. Clearly, they are not thinking this through. Henry moved to LA in the 1930s and wrote puff pieces for Photoplay and other star magazines. In 1943, he became the head of talent for David O. Selznick, who gave him a fabulous education in unrestrained self-indulgence. Henry had to keep up with Selznick, so he started taking Benzedrine to accomplish that. And he also learned what a good bet meant. It meant an easy lay. Henry could spot unpolished talent within 10 minutes of meeting someone. He typically invited the dude back to his apartment, and if the audition went well, he became a client. It's not just straight guys who were predators. If you watch the Netflix series Hollywood, Jim Parsons' characterization is spot on. Henry was just a freaking nasty ass. He was also the guy who renamed all of his stars with super butch names. Guy Madison, Rory Calhoun, Tab Hunter, and Rock Hudson. He named Rock for the Rock of Gibraltar, or a bird, depends on who you ask, and the Hudson River. Total side note, any book on Rock needs an index in the back for all the men in there because Rod, Roddy, Rock, Guy, Mike, Mark, Tom, Tab, it's a lot. I could really use an index. Like, it's difficult. This is the way Henry Wilson summed up Rock for Look Magazine in the very beginning. Quote, 
He's wholesome. He doesn't perspire. He has no pimples. He smells of milk. His whole appeal is cleanliness and respectability. This boy is pure. Even though he was pure, Henry still had a lot to change about Rock. He had him take drama lessons, fixed his posture, broke his vocal cords so he would have a deeper sounding voice, he learned to pretend to relax, and he had to stop biting his fingernails. While he did stop biting them, he changed to rubbing his index finger over his thumbnail, causing a big groove. You can see this when he's turning off a light switch in the beginning of Pillow Talk. They did the rounds at the studios. Selznick said no, Walter Wanger said no, the head of talent at MGM said she suspected Rock was gay because he was holding Henry's hand and giggling. And we all know MGM was pretty anti-gay, so that was a no. Henry dressed Rock up in beat up old jeans and boots and took him to see Raoul Walsh, a one-eyed director of mostly Westerns. Raoul had discovered John Wayne while he was at USC and he thought Rock was almost as beautiful as Wayne had been. So he agreed to put Rock in a movie called Fighter Squadron. It was a big deal because Jack Warner had gotten color footage from D-Day to put in it. This was before the History Channel, so it wasn't up everyone's ass back then like it is now. So that Hollywood show on Netflix makes a big deal out of Rock being so dumb that he completely messes up his lines. Rock himself said that he had to do like 20 takes during his first movie for one line. When he got older, he changed that number to 38. There is no official record, at least on Warner Brothers' end, but Tab Hunter said it was like over a dozen times that he screwed up one line. That Netflix show really tried to make Rock look like a Cro-Magnon. He wasn't stupid. He was just super nervous, and honestly, everyone should stop thinking hot people are all at Hedy Lamar's level of smartness. Most hot people aren't smart because they don't have to be. So Raul Walsh knew that he had to train Rock, obviously. So he took him on location for the remake of High Sierra. See, they're already making remakes of shit back then. He also had Rock paint his house, drive him around, and garden. Sure, I mean, you're paying him, why not? In 1949, Universal bought Rock's contract from Walsh. Universal seemed to always be trying to figure out what the hell they were doing. Except for when Irving Thalberg was there. During the 1940s and 50s, there were classes to teach actors everything. If that kind of sounds like MGM, that would be because the head of production at Universal was Bill Goetz, Louis B. Mayer's not-so-great son-in-law. Henry started working his publicity magic. He got pieces about rock and papers to get people interested in him. He was in Winchester 73, where he had to play a Native American and do all of his own stunts in a loincloth. He supposedly had a big affair with Vera Ellen during this time. She said the best thing about rock was his mother's cooking. Okay. She left him for a younger man, and that was great because she then became the one that got away in the story of Rock's life. In 1951, Rock met his lifelong best friends, George Nader and Mark Miller. They were a couple, and since Rock was single, it was never an issue, at least press-wise, if they went out together because it was three of them, not four, so like not a double date. Nader came from money, and he'd been in the Navy like Rock. He was also an actor, but since he had money, he wasn't really hungry for success, so he was just like, whatever, B-movies are fine. Miller was from a poor background, and he met Nader while they were doing a play in Pasadena. Rock wasn't making much money at Universal, so both of his friends would often pay his rent for him. Don't worry, they will get their money back. Things were not going great at Universal. They were gonna, like, let him go, because he was in the same acting class as Tony Curtis, who had really gotten his career together in the same amount of time that Rock had not. Could you imagine being in the same dramatic class with Tony Curtis and Rock Hudson in their prime? I would accomplish nothing. 
So Rock goes in to see Roger Jones, a publicist at Universal. He had just been offered a job at MGM to take over for Gable and Judy Garland's publicity and was at that very moment considering quitting Universal. So Rock comes in all hopeless and shit and Roger says, do you want to be a star? And Rock says, yes. Boom. Three months later, he's a star. Roger got Rock a trainer. He learned how to box. He was up every morning at 4 a.m. and home by 9. And his name was finally above a title in Ben of the river. Teen girls were going effing nuts for him at the premiere and the fan mail came flooding in. Okay, things are really going to pick up. So let's grab a drink and I'll be right back. Has anybody seen My Gal? Was Rock's first time working with a director that did the most for his career, Douglas Sirk. Sirk was a German director who left Germany in 1937 because he wasn't a Nazi, yay, and his second wife was Jewish, so they kinda had to get out. His first wife hated the new wife so much that she joined the Nazi party. Then she banned their son from seeing his father, Douglas, and that kid ended up dying fighting for the Nazis in 1944. What? That right there is melodramatic enough to be a Douglas Cirque movie. Why was that not made? A Cirque film is like a pumpkin spice latte in movie form. I'm a basic bitch, I acknowledge it. I love PSLs, so this is not a knock. They're almost always set in the fall, the lighting is beyond perfection, they are the height of melodrama, and there's always gorgeous clothes. Rock referred to them as double technicolor. Cirque knew this is what the American public needed so that he could slip in themes of gender roles in post-war America, sexuality, capitalism, nonconformity, and identity crisis. Rock and Jane Wyman did two films together for Cirque. Magnificent Obsession and All That Heaven Allows. And honestly, the biggest villain in Hollywood history is Jane Wyman's hairdresser. Did he hate her? That is the only explanation to the abomination that was on her head in both of these films. These two movies solidified Rock as a beefcake heartthrob, and this is how we know him. Life Magazine called him out in an article in 1955. The very first sentence said, quote, he needs to get married or explain why not. Jeez. He had been living with this actor named Jack Navarre. He had also been having an affair with an Italian actor in Europe while filming Captain Lightfoot. So he was not really thinking about marrying some random broad. The head of Confidential Magazine told all of his writers to expose Rock Hudson. Henry Wilson was tipped off to that goal and went in to negotiate. So instead of them publishing Dirt on Rock, Confidential printed a story about Rory Calhoun's armed robbery in 1940, who gives a shit? and Tab Hunter going to jail after a pajama party with 26 other dudes. That's a friggin' party. So with all this brewing, Henry knew Rock needed to get Jack out of his house and get married to just shut it all up. Phyllis Gates was a cute girl next door type who just happened to be Henry's secretary. While Rock was in Europe, Henry had Jack take Phyllis on a road trip. It was reported back to Rock that Jack had taken his car without permission, so Rock refused to take his calls, Jack's allowance was cut off, and finally he got the hint and moved out. Phyllis claimed she did not know that her relationship with Rock was set up by Henry. Um, Henry was almost always on all the dates they went on, so did she not think that was weird? Henry told Rock that he was an actor and marriage would be his greatest challenge and everyone would be happy. Well, I mean, except for Rock. Phyllis said he came into Henry's office one day, said that he'd gotten a ring as compensation for a TV appearance and said, eh, do you, you want it? That was the proposal. They got married in Santa Barbara eight days before his 30th birthday. And the first two phone calls he made were to Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. 
Giant was supposed to be a sweeping, dramatic film in the same vein as Gone with the Wind. Gable even told director George Stevens he wanted to play the lead, but he was 54 and the lead was super young. Uh, no, it was not going to happen. The studio thought about getting Bill Holden and Audrey Hepburn, but Stevens thought Hepburn was too prim. Rock and Liz Taylor immediately clicked. Of course, there were rumors that they were actually a couple. All they did was get drunk and drink chocolate martinis together. Come on. Rock and James Dean did not get along. Years later, Rock said Dean was a prick. He was selfish and petulant and believed his own press releases. On the set, he upstaged an actor and stepped on his lines. Arrogant, but let him alone and he was brilliant. Rock thought Stevens was giving Dean all the good close-ups. And Rock knew Dean had been kept by an older man just like he had. But the real fight was over Liz Taylor's attention. When Rock found out about Dean's death, he totally broke down. Phyllis Gates asked him why the news affected him this way since he didn't even really like him. And Rock said, quote, because I wanted him to die, because I hated him. I was jealous of him because I was afraid he was stealing the picture from me. I've been wishing him dead since we were in Texas and now he's gone. The movie had great reviews and Rock was even nominated for an Oscar, but it only won for Best Director. And it should surprise no one that Rock's marriage was in the shits. While in Rome, he told Phyllis they were going to have lunch with that hot Italian actor he used to bang. She said she didn't want to have lunch with that, quote, silly fruitcake. And Rock cracked her across the face so hard her necklace broke. Phyllis really liked being Mrs. Hudson and she wanted Rock to start living the star lifestyle that she wanted. He did not want that. All he wanted to do was wear plaid shirts and moccasins and drink some margaritas. So he did not mind the break he got while he filmed A Farewell to Arms with David O. Selznick. David wanted this film for his new wife, Jennifer Jones. So he traded Warners for the rights to A Star Is Born. There were nine versions of the script before they even got started. Good old David. He fired the director, John Houston, the day before they began filming, and he made weird notes to the cinematographer like, please keep your eye out for Rock Hudson's Adam Apple, which can be very unattractive pictorially and romantically, particularly if highlighted. Who else is going to weirdly watch Rock Hudson's Adam's Apple from now on? Phyllis was bitching about getting Rock home because she wanted to go to the Oscars and even Henry Wilson got involved. David sent a note through his lawyer. This is exactly what it said. Try to make this obviously dim-witted woman understand that Hudson has literally knocked himself out for six months and that she's doing the worst conceivable disservice to him by keeping him in his upset frame of mind. Hudson has pitifully told me of his total inability to make his non-professional wife understand the situation. But even more incredible is that Wilson is so stupid. When he came back, he moved into the Beverly Hills Hotel. Hedda Hopper told Motion Picture Magazine, don't you want me to do a special story for you on Phyllis Hudson? She won't give it to anybody else. Of course, she won't say he's a F word and name his lover, but we can hint at that. Phyllis did not give an interview because that would have hurt Rock's career and her chances at any kind of money. She did, however, get a private eye to secretly record her talking to Rock. There are transcripts on my blog. He was really honest about everything and even cried. I know he's an actor, but it didn't feel like he was pulling any shit, unlike Phyllis. I am not a fan of hers, 
She got $130,000 in payout for the divorce, and he kept giving her money whenever she needed it well into the 1960s. The notes she would send him years later to get that cash would say, Hi, hun, alls I need you for is dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign, and dollar sign sex, dollar sign sex, dollar sign sex. Love, wifey. Sounds a little bit like blackmail to me. Phyllis wrote a book, My Husband, Rock Hudson, and it was published two years after his death. So still in the late 80s, she's claiming to be totally naive about him being gay. What she failed to mention was that she was butch and refused to give up her harem, but demanded that Rock stay monogamous to her. What a dumbass this Phyllis Gates was. I was born in the wrong era for many reasons, and not being able to be a famous beard wife is towards the top of that list. I would have loved to be fake married to Rock Hudson. That is like dream job for me. Rock had done 40 pictures by 1959 and not one had been in comedy until Pillow Talk, which no one wanted to touch. The movie theater said that sophisticated comedies went out with William Powell and that Doris Day and Rock Hudson were things of the past. Once it became a hit and nominated for Oscars, the press called it a sex comedy you can bring the whole family to. Uh, okay, that is a weird advertising campaign, but fine. After that, Rock went on and hosted a TV show called The Big Party. It was an informal gathering in his home and he and Tallulah Bankhead, darling, invited other stars to come and chat and sing. It was a reality TV show before that was even a thing. Also, a fabulous idea for a show. It didn't take off, but there are episodes up on my blog. Naturally, I think they're fun, so who knows, you might as well. Rock agreed to a contract renewal with Universal. He said he'd stay with them for five more years, but they had to buy him the house he lived in. It was a 27-room Spanish-style home nicknamed The Castle. It was horseshoe-shaped around a courtyard. Every room had a name. The Blue Room, the Zsa Gaborg bathroom, etc. And Gypsy Rose Lee was his neighbor. Of course, she kept tons of peacocks in her backyard because... She had to make her fans out of something. While Rock was on vacation in 1964, a 32-year-old housewife from Anaheim and her five-year-old daughter broke into his house. Why? So she could say she slept in Rock Hudson's bed. She took some souvenirs, but luckily for him, did not find the stack of stud photos of guys he'd been dating at the time. They were in his nightstand, so honestly, I have no idea how she missed those. He did throw a legendary party to celebrate Carol Burnett getting her own show in 1967. He invited 400 Hollywood big shots like Lucille Ball, Debbie Reynolds, Henry Fonda, even Groucho. I know, he's not our favorite, but he was there. Rock did not care that it was all A-listers there. He still kept it informal and had Mexican food. Hell yeah. While she waited for a drink at the bar, Carol hollered over to Tennessee Ernie Ford and said, hey, old pea picker. The guy who turned around was not Ernie Ford. It was Prince Rainier, Grace Kelly's husband and actual royalty. Oops. All of Rock's boy parties at the castle were closed set. They typically ended relatively early, and the only guys who stuck around were the young ones who didn't have jobs to go to in the morning. Now, Rock maybe, probably, has a connection to one of the oldest gay bars in Kentucky. He was friends with the two men that owned the Gilded Cage. What a fabulous name for a gay bar. Anyways, it's said Rock gave them the funds to open this club. One of the owners, James Barnett, 
he was an openly gay professional wrestling promoter, so if you're into professional wrestling or sports, maybe that means something to you. So because of that, parties at the Gilded Club were filled with smoke and hot athletes of all different kinds of sports. One of the athletes that attended a party called Henry Wilson and said he had photos of Rock and he would trade them if Henry could make him a star. Henry said, yeah, fine, you're hot enough, it's all right. He got the photos back and the blackmailer was in some crappy B-movies. Everyone's happy. In 1964, Rock met Tom Clark. This guy would probably be his most major relationship. Rock normally went for outdoorsy types, and Tom was more refined, like a gay Thurston Howell III. Well, Thurston Howell III seems pretty gay to me, so whatever. Anyway, Tom was very direct in a way only gay men can be, and he worked his way up to become the senior publicist at MGM. He was probably the reason Rock ended his 18-year professional relationship with Henry Wilson. He had been terrified to do it because Rock thought Henry would throw acid in his face to get him back. That does sound like something Henry would do, so yeah. Henry Wilson had problems with booze, drugs, and paranoia. He lost all of his money, moved into the motion picture and television home, where he died of cirrhosis of a liver in 1974. He did not even have enough money for a grave marker. Years later, someone put a headstone up and it says star, star maker. I guess that's appropriate for Henry Wilson. Rock did end up doing one movie with John Wayne called The Undefeated. The movie was so-so, but when asked about Rock's sexuality, Wayne said, quote, It never bothered me. Life's too short. Who the hell cares if he's queer? The man plays great chess. I did not see that coming from someone who would make extremely racist comments during a Playboy interview nine years later. While in France filming Darling Lily, Rock met an underprivileged eight-year-old girl who was hired, well, her entire class was hired, to do a musical number with Julie Andrews. Rock really wanted to adopt her, but she had parents. They were just too poor to take care of her. The French government said, you can have her, but just for one year. He said he couldn't take her to Hollywood, treat her like a princess for a year, and then return her to poverty. I don't know if that was the best choice or not, but a weird choice was recording a rock album in 1970. Oh yes, it is real. And it's called Rock Gently. It is linked on my blog. It is not great. You should still try and listen. He then did Pretty Maids All in a Row. This is the first American movie filmed by Roger Vadim, who was Jane Fonda's then husband. It was almost X-rated, but MGM cut it down to an R rating. Some people have called it one of the stupidest films ever made. Yet Quentin Tarantino thinks it's one of the top best movies ever made. So it is a cult classic. After a string of messes, TV was a comeback for Rock. He did Macmillan and Wife, which was supposed to have like a Thin Man vibe. It ran for six years. Rock hated doing it, but he loved the money. He did try his hand at theater. I know I said his album wasn't great, but his voice is not awful. So he did a tour of I Do, I Do with Carol Burnett. They had a blast, duh. And then he did 20th Century in 1979. The critics were always really nice to him, so I really don't have much to say about his theater career other than it wasn't that big. That's what she said. By 1981, he was smoking three packs of cigarettes a day, and since he lived with Tom Clark, who was an alcoholic, he too was a booze hound. So he had to get a quintuple bypass. He stopped drinking, but did not stop smoking. Two years later, Rock hired a 30-year-old named Mark Christian to transfer all of his records onto cassette tapes. The wave of the future. 
Mark was gorgeous and young, and he lived with like this Norma Desmond type lady. Rock took him out on shopping sprees and paid for acting lessons because of course he wants to be an actor, except he's too lazy to make it to even a casting meeting. Mark was really shitty to Rock, and he and this Norma Desmond lady friend threatened to go to tabloids and expose Rock if he ever dumped Mark. After Rock went to visit the Reagans at the White House in 1984, Nancy sent him photos of them together and told him to get the zit on his neck checked out. So he did. And in June, he was told he was positive for AIDS and maybe cancer. Actually, in 1975, he had been told that he had onset liver cancer and needed to slow down, but apparently was never treated for that. What is going on with doctors back then? Initially, he told only his inner circle and had George Nader mail out anonymous letters to anyone he had sex with recently and told them to get checked out. Rock totally focused on work and he agreed to sign on for Pillow Talk 2. This is the premise. His character and Doris Day's are divorced, but their daughter is going to marry Tony Randall's character's son. Thank God this was not made. There was a treatment called HPA 23 that Rock had to fly to France to get. I'm not a science person, clearly. This is why I'm talking about old Hollywood. All I know is that HPA 23 did not get rid of the disease, but it really helped slow down AIDS. One afternoon, he's walking around Paris and he runs into Robert Osborne. Robert said, hey, I'm going to get Mexican food for dinner and bring it to Tom Jones, not the singer, this guy was like a publicist for Disney. And would Rock wanna come with? Sure. And of course, Olivia de Havilland showed up and they all had a blast for the rest of the night. Honestly, this is the most Robert Osborne story I've ever heard. Of course, he just runs into Rock Hudson in Paris. God, I love him. So Osborne said this, we had the best time. When I found out later that Rock was over there on this very serious matter, it struck me even more about what a complicated time in his life that was and how good for him it was to have an entire evening with just old friends because after that, things were pretty grim. In July, it was announced to the press officially that Rock had AIDS. The White House physician at the time said that Ronald Reagan had known about AIDS for years and had thought, quote, like measles, it would just go away, unquote. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Now that someone Reagan actually knew, someone nice, got it, it was finally real to him. The announcement was shocking on many levels, but it really shattered the gay stereotype and challenged what Americans thought gay meant. Rock's doctor said he was the single most influential AIDS patient ever. This is before Liberace or Freddie Mercury got it, like, Rock was the face of this disease. Liz Taylor had already lost two of her personal assistants to AIDS. One killed himself when he found out his diagnosis. She was so pissed that people did not take it more seriously. I think a lot of people remember her as either a homewrecker of Debbie Reynolds' marriage or a kooky old lady who used to be friends with Michael Jackson. She was an absolute ass kicker in the 1980s and 1990s for AIDS charities. While Rock was dying, she held a big benefit in LA and raised $1 million for AIDS research. She co-founded AMFAR with a donation from Rock to kickstart the organization to help research for a cure. Then she started her own AIDS foundation to help with care and emotional support of patients. Like with most diseases, in the very beginning, nobody knew what the hell was going on with AIDS. So people were really scared to even touch 
rock. And one day Liz is visiting him and she says, oh, for goodness sakes. And she climbs into bed with rock just to comfort him like a friend would. When rock passed away, it was Liz who took control. Like she said, we're not doing anything at Forest Lawn. That's going to be a shit show and a total circus. So she gets a big white tent set up in the backyard at the castle. There were some speakers and there was mariachi music and margaritas. It's exactly what rock would have loved. Doris Day called Liz and said, I want to go, but I can't handle it. And George Nader echoed the same sentiment. Rock was cremated, and when his ashes were spread at sea, Liz offered herself up as a decoy for the paparazzi so the rest of his friends could get onto the boat in peace. Tom Clark spread the ashes, and a huge rainbow showed up as they hit the water. And then a seagull came and shit on Mark Miller's cashmere sweater. Everyone agreed that was definitely Rock getting the last laugh. Do I even have to ask the question? Okay, is Rock Hudson coming to our party? He's super laid back, men, women, everybody loves looking at him. And he had a damn show where he hosted celebrity parties. I will gladly give up some of my responsibilities to him. So yeah, he's totally in, yes. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Party. For more information about this episode, head over to hollywoodpartypodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. If you like the show, please tell every single person you know. Like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Anchor or whatever you use to listen to us. See you next week. That's that noisy girl.